Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. In this lecture, Dr. Alexander Sturgis, director of the Holborn Museum, talks about its plans for the future. He gives an insight into what visitors will be able to see in the renewed museum and the ways in which the development will allow it to play its part to the full in the cultural life of the city and region. Um, thank you very much indeed, and it's a great pleasure to be here. And additional pleasure because, as I hope you all know, but I, I do suspect that some of you may not, uh, the Holborn Museum is, of course, the museum of the University of Bath. Um, and it's a relationship that has existed uh, since the foundation of the university, uh, obviously, which came obviously much later than the foundation of the museum. Uh, but it's a relationship that is now, I think, stronger and more secure than it has uh, ever been. Um, and we now have a body called the Higher Education Strategy Board, which doesn't perhaps sound particularly enticing, uh, but which is um, uh, on which sit representatives of uh, various faculties of Bath University, but also, and importantly, representatives from the other universities of the region, from Bristol, from the University of the West of England, and from Bath Spa University as well. And so uh, the Holborn's plans for the future very much have the higher education sector generally in their sites. Um, the Holborn, of course, is a familiar site. Uh, it sits at the end of Great Pulteney Street, um, and the building, of course, has been there since the end of the 18th century and was always conceived as the, this sort of grand um, finale to Great Pulteney Street. Um, and also, as we will see, uh, the gateway to what lies beyond the building. Um, it's a building that is fantastically well known. The Holborn, I fear or I know, is not as well known, the insides of it, as it should be. Uh, and I can't tell you the number of times I've uh, been in the museum having... Uh, persuaded various people into it who say, I've lived in Bath all my life, but do you know what? This is the first time I've ever actually been in here. Uh, I mean, it's always a case of um, treasures close to home that one always often thinks that one can get round to it at a later date. Uh, but clearly, one of the plans for the Holborn's future is that more people are encouraged through its doors. Because through its doors, for those of you who do know it well, and I see many um, of you here this evening, um, the treasures it holds are very great indeed. Um, before talking about the future, a brief um, resume, if you like, of its past. The Holborn Museum... Uh, is built around the collection of this charming gentleman here, uh, Sir William Holborn. Uh, Sir William Holborn was a Bath gent uh, living on Cavendish Crescent um, uh, uh, up towards Lansdowne um, with his three maiden sisters, a family none of whom married. Um, and Sir William collected uh, this extraordinary, really, collection of paintings, of miniatures, of porcelain, of silver, of bronzes, of myolica, all or nearly all on small, in small scale. They were in a townhouse, um, um, and so the collection has a, that sense 
of uh, a townhouse collection and a Victorian townhouse collection at that. Um, it must have been extraordinarily cluttered within uh, the walls of Cavendish uh, Crescent. Um, and it has, uh, and given that, it has felt fairly cluttered within the walls of the Sydney Hotel for the last hundred years. And this uh, constructed view gives some sense of, that, of the character of the collection. Uh, that uh, Renaissance bronzes and Maiolica, uh, paintings from the 17th uh, and 18th century, uh, some furniture as well, silver, silver particularly strong, uh, and so on, uh, and books and porcelain. And what's extraordinary about the collection is that it exists almost completely intact from the moment that it, um, uh, from the moment of Sir William's death, or rather, I mean, the, it was his sister. Uh, in fact, who bequeathed or gave the collection um, uh, or uh, created the Holborn Museum in memory, to a large extent, of the family, which this, uh, these, this brother and three unmarried sisters were the last of the line. So it was very much to uh, maintain uh, the family name as well. Um, some of the treasures, the wonderful Susini bronze, one of the great bronzes of the uh, Italian uh, Renaissance uh, um, and one that belonged to the French royal family as well. Uh, this beautiful little roundel by Peter Bruegel, albeit the younger, uh, based on a work, as so many of his works were by his father, uh, with slightly uncertain meaning behind it. Clearly, a moral of some sort is being pointed here. We have this uh, peasant here, a sack full of something behind him, pointing up to this figure up in the tree who's clambering up and his hat's falling off uh, as he apparently tries to steal uh, um, eggs from a nest. Um, the suggested meaning is something along the lines of a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush, uh, but it's uh, based presumably on a Netherlandish proverb. Uh, so this is Sir William's collection around which the, uh, the uh, museum has grown, and that was always the intention. It was always the kernel. It wasn't as the Wallace collection is uh, or... Um, uh, uh, various other examples, the Sone Museum, uh, a closed collection which could not, was not allowed to grow. It was always intended that this was the heart of a museum of fine art, uh, fine and decorative art for Bath, um, and it has grown substantially since uh, the end of the 19th century by around 2,000 objects. Uh, some of these one looks at with some um, curiosity as to how they were accepted by the museum. There was clearly a moment shortly after it opened in the Sydney Hotel where it seems the people of Bath came with their boxes from their attic and emptied them into the Holborn Museum. I was rather pleased, however, to discover that they were doing the same at the Victoria Art Gallery. Where looking through the accessions register there, you see that the same characters are distributing their largesse to both institutions. And there is a very interesting story to tell about the twin histories of the Victoria Art Gallery and the Holborn, because it's deeply curious, in fact, that the two were not the same thing at the, at the end of the 19th century. Um, this is a slight red herring, but when they were founded, the Holborn Museum was a collection looking for a building in which it could be housed. And the Victoria Art Gallery 
founded within a generation of the Holborn, was a building looking for a collection. They couldn't get on with each other, um, and so the collection, the Holborn collection, did not enter the Victoria Art Gallery for both personal and political reasons, I think. But, um, but I think the fact that they didn't is, in fact, Bath's gain rather than loss, because we have at the end of either end of Great Pulteney Street these two very different uh, institutions, but each with their own very particular strengths. Among the most spectacular way in which the collection has grown since um, uh, Sir William Holborn's death, however, is in the British 18th century paintings. Sir William owned some British 18th century paintings, but all the great pictures that are now uh, in the Holborn Museum, and this is a long-term loan rather than actually part of the collection, but the, uh, the Gainsboroughs and... Perhaps, I think, my favourite work in the whole museum, uh, the wonderful Ramsay of Rosamond Sargent, uh, came to the museum later, and indeed after the Second World War, um, as uh, in various bequests. Um, the Orm Sargent bequest, uh, this painting here, but also uh, the Ernest Cook bequest as well. Uh, and as a consequence of those bequests, the museum has become a... Uh, magnet, if you like, for further uh, gifts um, and acquisitions of British 18th century uh, painting in particular. Uh, So the collection's been growing, but the museum has stayed where it is for the last hundred years. It wasn't originally housed in the so-called Sydney Hotel, but it moved there at the beginning of the 20th century. Um, And the building has its own history. Um, The building was built not as a museum, but as a hotel. And it was built in this very particular site. Um, This is uh, an aerial view. There is the Holborn. Here is Great Pulteney Street, Laura Place there. And then, of course, it sits within Sydney Gardens, which were, at the end of the 18th century, built as a pleasure garden. Uh, a, a place for, of entertainment and diversion where you would uh, come and stroll and take in the excitements that were to be found there, which included labyrinths and mechanical swings and hermits' cottages and uh, mock castles and what have you. So it was a, a place of fantasy and wonder and enjoyment. Uh, and in order to get into it, you had to pass through uh, the gates of the Sydney Hotel. This is a print from early in the 19th century showing what the building looked like then. Uh, the eagle-eyed of you will notice that it had one less story at that point, but also that the curtain, uh, that a wall extended on either side of it. The, colon- the elegant colonnades that are there now were not part of the original design. And to get into a pleasure garden, you had to pay. You had to have a token. And so uh, you passed through the gate here, uh, unless you were on a horse, in which case you could go around the ride uh, through an, exit, uh, an entrance at the side. But this was the way into the garden. So you passed from Great Pulteney Street and then entered through the building, which was very narrow, and it still is surprisingly narrow, but it's slightly uh, less narrow than it was then, and then exited into this completely different world. Um, So from the city and Great Pulteney Street into this garden, uh, which had supper boxes ranged around, uh, you came through an archway, 
this was a transparency, so an image that let light through it of Apollo playing on his uh, lyre, which you would see as you came through. Um, and there you would see Jane Austen wandering around on a daily basis um, and all these wonders. Uh, this rather sedate view by Nats, uh, a rather more uh, sort of raucous view uh, view of the same subject uh, by um, Nixon here um, with uh, various uh, people spilling their tea and so on and so forth. Uh, but, and here you see one, possibly the famous mechanical swing. Um, this was designed by Merlin, the inventor of, um, among other things, the roller blade, apparently. Uh, but anyway, there was this extraordinary contraption uh, within uh, the gardens. Uh, through the 19th century, or by the end of the 19th century, this wonderful, arcade, or not Arcadian, sort of satirical place had fallen on hard times, and so too had the Sydney Hotel. And where, this is early in the 20th century, this photograph was taken, and the uh, building had been derelict for a generation. Uh, it had previously been a sanatorium and then a college, uh, but it was then empty. Um, and we know that Barbara Ann Holborn, Holborn's sister, had had her eye on the building as the destination for um, the Holborn Museum, and they arrived there finally, as I say, early in the 20th century, and employed the famous Edwardian architect, um, Sir Reginald Blomfield, to convert the building into, a, uh, into the museum we know now. Um, and so, if I just flick between the two, you can see what he got up to. Um, he gutted, his own words, the insides of the building, and we have no record, in fact, of what um, was there uh, when he inherited it, which is a frustration. Um, but he crucially created, from these three stories, two galleries lengthening these windows and uh, putting the roundels there and then creating a top-lit picture gallery um, up above. Um, so, and then it was Blomfield who put the uh, familiar urns with their wonderful flames uh, on uh, the facade uh, and created the colonnades on either side so you could go round the garden, or round the building into the garden behind. Uh, and that was how he envisaged the circulation. But what he did at the instruction of the museum trustees was cut the building and its gardens off from the park behind. Um, and the rear facade that Blomfield created was one which offered no way into the gardens. You couldn't walk out into the uh, park as you had been able to before. Um, Instead, there was this rather severe facade behind, and the garden itself also offered no way through into the park. There is now a gate there uh, from the museum garden into the park, but it has not been there very long. So the historic relationship, if you like, between the building and its landscape, urban and park landscape, was severed at that point. Because at that point, museums were very different places to what they are now. Uh, the idea that you're a museum in a park now seems in extraordinarily natural. One thinks of the Serpentine uh, in Kensington Gardens, uh, and there are many other examples around the world of uh, museums placed within parks and the works spilling out into the parks and gardens. Um, 
at the early 20th century, uh, and, and they seem very much part of the same world, the world of, of leisure, the world of the day out. Uh, you go to the museum, you wander around the park, you uh, uh, sit in the gardens and so on. Uh, in the early 20th century, there was a rather different model to the museum, um, which, and certainly uh, the Holborn was, uh, it was a private garden, considered a private garden cut off from the public park. Um, and the plans for extending the museum, which are vital for, in order to provide the space that we require, um, also perform the function of reconnecting the building to its surroundings. Uh, so the plans are, as you know, to build an extension at the back of the museum uh, that allows the routes through from Great Pulteney Street, once again out through the back of the building into the gardens. Uh, but, they, but also, as importantly, and more importantly as far as I'm concerned, they also provide the space that we need in order to function properly as a museum. Which brings us back to the difference between museums in the early 20th century and museums now. Museums now do a lot more than they did in the early 20th century, and they have to, in order both to survive, but also in order to do their job properly. Uh, since um, the uh, 1910s, when the museum moved into uh, this building, the collection, as I say, has grown by 2,000 objects. Uh, the building hasn't. At the same time, the staff has grown from one cleaner and one curator to a uh, staff of around 12. Uh, and what they do, the activity generated by the museum, has escalated immeasurably. We now have, as museums should have and need to have, an education service that brings school children into the museum and talk, teaches people of all ages um, uh, and introduces them to the collection. We have, crucially, an exhibitions department that puts on exhibitions. And exhibitions, for better or worse, have become the lifeblood of museums. Uh, they are how one generates press and publicity. Uh, the requirement for change and news, they are the things that bring people back into the museum on a regular basis and bring new people into the museum um, uh, as well by, uh, through uh, appealing to different audiences. Um, we also have a need to, or will have a need to have a proper shop and a proper cafe as well to serve our visitors. Uh, we need a lift that works. Uh, we need more loos and so on and so forth. So uh, clearly the, uh, the museum has been for, some, for many years constrained by the wonderful building in which it sits. And, um, and the extension will allow us to breathe again. Uh, and this cross-section gives a sense of what the building will deliver. Um, this cross-section is a very beautiful thing. Um, it also cost an inordinate amount of money to produce. Um, and since it was made, there has been one significant change to the cross-section. Uh, and unfortunately, at the moment, we haven't been able to afford to uh, show it within the cross-section. But the basement um, is now extends underneath the entire extension, which um, is an entirely sensible thing for it to do um, and was something that we felt we couldn't do, but then we were actually uh, 
sort of uh, forced into it by the requirements of the uh, environmental controls and plant and boiler that we needed. And uh, so anyway, it's in fact a very satisfactory outcome that we have created more space for ourselves um, underneath the extension. But this gives an idea, Great Pulteney Street is this way, the garden's that way. You come in now, and as I say, you walk through into this cafe on the ground floor level, which is extraordinarily transparent. So it opens out onto uh, the gardens. Uh, Then above, half of what the money we're spending is actually restoring what's already there. Uh, So... uh, putting in environmental controls, crucially to look after the works we have in the collection and also to make it bearable for the poor people who come to look at them. Um, But so restored galleries on the first and second floor and then new galleries, a new top-lit exhibition gallery mirroring the picture gallery above and then new uh, uh, permanent display galleries here. And these are very exciting as far as I'm concerned because... um, If you remember, Blomfield created two stories from what had been three across this space. So this room is extraordinarily high and allows us in the extension to create a mezzanine, which allows us to create smaller spaces. And this is really what the collection needs. The collection was a domestic collection. Uh, Not only that, but Sir William clearly loved the small and the miniature. Uh, And so he has wonderful little cameos as well as miniatures, extraordinary sort of micro-mosaics, but also um, micro-carvings in ivory, which are just slightly mind-boggling and uh, alarming creations in which every blade of grass has been carved in ivory, uh, these little scenes. Um, And he clearly loved this sort of miniaturism as an idea. His Dutch paintings, the strongest bit, a group of paintings in the collection, are on the whole small cabinet pictures. And so we really need small spaces to show them. And the museum has never had small spaces. It's only ever had two big galleries, wonderful rooms, fantastic rooms, wonderful for the display of large works, uh, but that have struggled historically to display the miniatures, for example, uh, or other small and light-sensitive objects. And the, uh, the Uh, extension will provide those spaces and I will talk a bit about the developing ideas for the displays there in just a moment Um, the internal workings of the space and the clarity of the links between top lit picture gallery in the existing building top lit gallery in the extension uh, transparent cafe at the bottom uh, and then the sort of cabinet of uh, small uh, display spaces was re- is really where the design of the building itself has come from and the historic, um, the historic sort of relationship of the building to the gardens. So as uh, so we, uh, the building rises from this almost completely transparent base and appears to float in that the columns that support it are, are as narrow as they can be and are set away from the corners. Um, And so we have this floating structure, which is uh, made of uh, or uh, uh, faced with uh, ceramic. And ceramic not only reflects what's inside uh, the building, because many of there's a wonderful porcelain and myolica collections, uh, but it's also itself reflective, so it will move 
or uh, with the sky, the light, the trees uh, against it. Uh, but it's also a crafted material. It has, um, uh, and the samples we've been working with and looking at and talking to people about have this wonderful uh, sort of depth to them, so that it is a beautiful material in itself as well. Uh, and so the, uh, the building that's created is this jewel-like structure which reflects, it has these fins which are also ceramic. So there's ceramic here on the outside of the building. These fins are also ceramic as they fall down. And then the building steps back behind this single glazed screen here, which is low iron glass, which is glass without colour in it. So it doesn't have that sort of um, green tinge to it. And behind that is uh, the same ceramic again. So there's this play of reflection, of shadow, of depth, uh, reflection on the glass, on the ceramic, on the ceramic behind the glass, the shadow of the fins falling behind onto uh, this building. So it will be a building that has a life to it as well, and a life that it takes in part from the garden in which it sits. So it's a sort of garden pavilion, if you like, uh, in the spirit, if clearly not in, on the design of the 18th century uh, pleasure garden. On the ground floor, just to uh, show you how it, uh, we have new spaces which are vital to us doing our job properly. A new uh, education space able for the first time to accommodate a whole class of children. Up to now, we've had to split classes up, which means we can only uh, look after one class at a time, which limits the numbers. This, at a stroke, doubles what we can do in terms of formal education with schools, but also provides a seminar room for work with universities and others, um, and uh, so allows us to do much more, a, a new shop, uh, and this cafe, uh, which will open onto the garden and be an extraordinarily beautiful place to sit, apart from anything else. Um, the new displays, the permanent collection is housed principally on the first floor, and I apologise if as I suspect may be the case, uh, you can't see a thing on the screen, can you? <laughs> Not much, but maybe a bit. But I'll, I'll try and give you an idea of some of the thoughts that we're having as we work on the displays. And these are very much drafts, but I think they do show uh, the sort of thing we're uh, going to be doing. This is the wonderful Grand Ballroom Gallery, as we call it. Uh, we've got one, one only, a wonderful chandelier within the collection, which uh, previously hung in the hall, but the uh, intention is that it becomes a central uh, feature within this room. And it's incredibly important that this room is uh, once again the glorious room it once was, or was clearly intended to be. At the moment, it's got brown hessian on the walls. We hope that might go. Uh, and the idea is to have in the centre of the room a sort of spectacular dining display laid out with all our, um, with both the, the most spectacular pieces of, of uh, Rococo's dining silver, but also uh, with uh, the dessert, some of the wonderful dessert porcelain displays that we have as well. So it's a, it is theatrical, and the room will, is a theatrical space uh, with its nine windows uh, all round it. One couldn't, I mean, again, uh, testimony to the fact that it wasn't designed as an art gallery. I mean, you don't, if you want to show pictures on walls, really want to put nine windows around the outside of the room. But 
Silver and porcelain are not light-sensitive, like paintings, like uh, many other things uh, within the collection. Um, and so there will be buffet displays as well of silver, of uh, oriental porcelain. Many of these have not been shown, uh, have been in store. Uh, but the most spectacular pieces, if you like, from uh, the Holborn's collection. Uh, this, a wonderful uh, uh, 18th century epern. Uh, this, one of the great treasures of the collection, uh, a, a very early Maiolica plate um, uh, um, showing Diana and Actian, uh, the unfortunate Actian who, uh, it's the dreadful story told in Ovid, but where he inadvertently and uh, happens to stumble across, I mean, it's hardly his fault, um, the naked Diana and all her nymphs bathing, and then makes a fatal error of staying and watching. Um, and then Diana turns him into a deer. And so on this side of the plate, you have him half deer, or yes, half deer and half still Actian in his breeches, uh, being ripped to pieces by his own dogs. Um, and Ovid's description uh, is dreadful, but um, has this wonderful um, description of him trying to tell, call his dogs off, saying sort of down Fido or whatever, but that his tongue has become the tongue of a deer, so he can't speak. He can't, and uh, so he is sort of ripped to pieces. Uh, but this is a wonderful and precious and almost unique um, in that there are very few examples of uh, uh, historiated sort of storytelling uh, myolic plates of, of this period. Uh, and then this, another very precious uh, object, uh, Renaissance bronze, uh, George and the Dragon, which was almost certainly in the collection of Charles I. I say almost certainly, there are about three others that were also almost certainly in the collection of Charles I, and we know he only had one, but um, I think it must be this one. <laughs> if it is, by the way, what is very... Uh, I mean, uh, Charles I clearly um, encouraged and had a cult of St. George himself, and the uh, badge of the Order of the Garter, which shows St. George and the Dragon, seems to be based upon Fennelli's bronze of George and the Dragon, uh, which would make this even, even more exciting if, as we know, it belonged to Charles I. So if we have a sort of spectacular theatrical display in the ballroom gallery, and with wonderful views, of course, which uh, down Great Pulteney Street, and uh, in the extension we have these, uh, this potential for smaller spaces. And the intention here is that the centre, if you like, at the begin, uh, in the middle of this space, is a similarly theatrical uh, evocation of Sir William Holborn and his collection, the nature of the collector. Uh, and just to remind you of what that might look like. But then around it, we would have uh, sort of cabinets, of curiosities. Uh, so that spilling sort of centrifugally, if you like, from Sir William, this sort of pulsing brain in the bottle in the middle of the room, we have uh, the collection spilling out with drawers in which you can explore the depth of the collection. Uh, and also, uh, so here on the first floor, uh, this would be essentially treated like a room of the Dutch cabinet paintings with some of the Dutch furniture, the uh, wonderful marquetry furniture, uh, a few cases with uh, some exquisite pieces of Dutch silver. Round here, a uh, group uh, display showing uh, 
it's called at the moment, I'm not entirely happy, happy about it, but it's called Tiny Treasures, but to show this, uh, the, that particular nature of Sir William's collection, the delight in the miniature, and there are some wonderful things within that. Moving to the collection of portrait miniatures and embroideries and so on and so forth. Uh, this is a rather soulless, computerised um, uh, beginnings of, uh, and this is very early stages with our exhibition designers, of uh, thinking about the materials, um, and these are far too dark, but uh, the materials of the cabin cabinetry, which will have, in the way that the building does too, this idea of boxes within boxes, uh, so that it is trying to recreate, or trying to create a uh, the, uh, the feeling of a cabinet of curiosities, but um, for in a museum context rather than a private collection context. And the same is true, this is the mezzanine floor above, where again we have um, various uh, a, a space here looking at the, the sort of shopping in 18th century Bath in particular and the, the cultural production of uh, the... Uh, Bath, in which printmakers and silhouettists and portrait painters and uh, and patchbox makers and toy shops all um, uh, jostled together, and here a space dedicated to one of our most spectacular recent acquisitions. Uh, this extraordinary, extraordinarily wonderful and awful at the same time sort of vulgar creation, uh, the uh, a, a Japan cabinet made. Um, despite appearances uh, made in uh, late 17th century London rather than China. Um, but, well, we, and the top and the bottom actually give that away fairly conclusively. Uh, but this, uh, this extraordinarily uh, lavish um, uh, piece of furniture, and this shows you just some of the panels upon it, uh, this tea-drinking ceremony, and the giveaway here is that everyone's sitting down rather than reclining to take tea, which shows that it, uh, although it's trying to look Chinese, it uh, clearly isn't. Uh, but I love these insects and birds that sort of are scattered across the whole of this piece of furniture. Um, and these wonderful flowers as well. And uh, the sources of this imagery are still being uh, explored, if you like, uh, and uh, our curator sort of... Um, been researching uh, the cabinet and how it was made and and the uh, imagery on it and is actually giving a lecture I think next week at the Wallace Collection where it currently is on loan um, and has been restored very kindly by the Wallace Collection uh, furniture restorer as well um, and around that piece we will be showing the cross currents if you like between China and uh, Europe, East and West, which, and these are just four of the pieces that show the sort of intricacies of those, of that relationship. This, I fear you won't be able to see on the slide, but uh, this is another 17th century uh, restoration uh, porringer, a piece of silver, which has chased onto it um, similarly sort of uh, Chinese-style designs. But then, of course, in the 18th century, we have um, porcelain manufacturers both these pieces made uh, by Meissen, uh, one very faithfully echoing uh, sort of genuine uh, Chinese export ware, and others creating a sort of Europeanized vision of, uh, of China. 
And then this is one of my um, favourite things, uh, although it's fantastically sort of crude and lumpen, uh, and I hope you can see it. It's uh, the Judgment of Paris, and these rather strange-looking uh, 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 goddesses. Uh, and this is actually made in um, South China, uh, made for export and made, based upon Western prints in precisely the same way that the Whitcomb cabinet was based on uh, a sort of Oriental patterns. Um, so <clears throat> that gives, I hope, a flavour of what will be discovered in here. And the excitement, I mean, the most exciting thing we're doing now is getting the collection out. It's all, as you know, the museum is shut. Um, the collection is in store, but it's in store that we can get our hands on. And so we're looking at the collection, uh, discovering things about it on a daily basis, um, but also looking at the relationships that sing uh, both visually but also thematically, uh, so that I think people will be amazed uh, uh, when the museum reopens at discovering quite the riches that we do have. But upstairs, too, we have the picture gallery, again restored. Uh, most importantly, from my point of view, the top light restored. There have been these dreadful black blackout blinds uh, pulled across these skylights um, for far too long because they're the only control of light that has been available and you have to control light. So it's been black or, uh, you know, nothing or too much. Um, and so we will have proper control of uh, the daylight so that we will be able to light properly by daylight in the picture gallery and also in the exhibition gallery across the way. And the connection between the two will allow us to move exhibitions and collection across that top floor, which I think is very important, giving us flexibility in the scale of exhibitions that we can mount. A, a short word on exhibitions before I finish and uh, ask if there are um, questions. Um, and uh, I'm sure there might be. Uh, but exhibitions, as I've said, are vitally important to uh, museums. Uh, and they are also vitally important, I think, to the future of the Holborn Museum. The ambition and scale of its exhibitions and the success of them is really going to be one of the key things that ensures or doesn't that the museum is a success. I think exhibitions and the lose are probably the two most important things to get right, um, and probably the cafe as well. Uh, but this is a little uh, wonderful, but not very large, painting by Canaletto of, in fact, the Vauxhall Pleasure Gardens, which some of you may have seen at the Holborn, um, it was the summer before last, uh, in a little exhibition that we did in our little exhibition space on the idea of the pleasure garden. Um, and it was a very uh, nice little show uh, to which I think around, um, I think about 5,000 people came to see it or five or 6,000 people came to see it. Um, and I say that because this picture came to us. In fact, it uh, belongs to Compton Verney, one of our partners, uh, but it had just been uh, in a rather different exhibition um, at the Dulwich Pitch Gallery, of, uh, which was looking at Canaletto in England. Uh, and they, it was you know, an important painting within that exhibition. And here are some of the other, exhibition, uh, other paintings that were in that exhibition. The Dulwich's own 
painting of Walton Bridge, uh, but also some other spectacular paintings by Canaletto as well, uh, to which I think around 60,000 people came. Um, So, and that was a consequence simply, I believe, of both the ambition and scale of those two exhibitions. Um, And I don't believe it's because Dulwich is easier to get to than the Holborn Museum, because it isn't. Uh, It's almost impossible to get to Dulwich. Um, But it was certainly a case of of the ambition of the exhibition. And I think, uh, having said that, exhibitions are, well, they are big business in that. They are very expensive to mount and becoming increasingly expensive to mount. So they are not something to be entered into lightly, if you like. Uh, But they are, as I say, very important. Uh, The question is then, of course, what kind of exhibitions should the Holborn be doing? Uh, And uh, and I'll just end by talking very briefly about ideas that we have. Uh, They're all, if you like, being planned, but they're none of them set in stone. Uh, I strongly believe that the starting point for exhibitions needs to be the place itself, uh, the Holborn Museum, um, and, and its collection. Uh, but having said that, one can take the collection of the Holborn in multifarious different ways um, and very exciting ones. Uh, we have an extraordinarily strong group of portraits. It's one of the great strengths of our painting collection, uh, 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 British portraits in particular um, from uh, most obviously Gainsborough but also the Ramsey I showed you earlier, Rayburn, uh, Stubbs, um, Angelica Kaufman and others. Um, But we don't have any portrait sculpture Uh, and yet portrait sculpture in the 18th century was, I mean uh, certainly in Britain, uh, sculpture was, uh, I mean it was the golden age of portrait sculpture Um, and if you were an 18th century uh, gentleman or lady looking to have your portrait done, it would be as likely that you would go um, to a sculptor as it would be to go to a painter, rather more expensive to go to a sculptor. Um, And so the idea of a large or a sort of grand uh, exhibition on portrait sculpture, I think, is fantastically appealing. And it could, as this slide suggests go back to the ancient world, this extraordinarily sort of um, moving uh, portrait from about 300 BC, a uh, uh, Hellenistic portrait, uh, to the modern day, this uh, Ron Muick self-portrait, uh, which he calls Mask, um, but also obviously have as a central moment that wonderful, uh, the wonderful portrait sculpture of the 18th century, and one could imagine the great bust by Wilton and um, Rubiliac and others sort of sitting with the portraits of Gainsborough uh, and Ramsey and others. Uh, so uh, also Gainsborough is clearly a vitally important part of both the Holborn's collection and, the hist- uh, and art within the city of Bath. Um, And again, we are blessed with a group of portraits by Gainsborough, but we don't have any landscapes. We've got one landscape sketch. So the idea of a landscape, uh, Gainsborough landscape show is another one that uh, is fantastically appealing. Um, 
and one that, if you like, falls more clearly within the historical parameters of the Holborn's collection. But so there are, there's clearly a room for both kinds of exhibitions, the general and the particular, the scholarly uh, and the popular. Uh, and one needs, I'm sure, to do uh, both and all. Um, and so we are uh, also considering and working on a uh, Gainsborough exhibition. But there are other ways, too, in which one can consider the collection, um, so that the very idea of collecting uh, can go in different ways. Uh, for example, it, it might go into the, uh, the ideas of um, or work created from collections, such as uh, Peter Blake's wonderful series of museums of white, as he calls them, or I think this is a museum of black and white, actually. Uh, yes, it is. Uh, but uh, sort of the, uh, the idea, which is, I think, in character, has some, uh, certainly does share with uh, Sir William Holborn's sort of co- uh, cabinet of curiosity feel. Uh, and then one can consider artists that work in the media uh, that is represented in the Holborn. Uh, again, an obvious uh, and, uh, example being Grayson Perry's extraordinary, I think, works uh, that he creates in um, uh, his uh, ceramic works. So, as I say, those are just suggestions. They're not outlines of actual exhibitions, but they are ways in which we are thinking and working. Um, and the key is variety, um, the key uh, and excitement, um, and activity as well. Uh, The site of the museum remains central and crucial, Uh, not only within Bath, uh, which is in itself fantastically important, but also in this extraordinary position at the end of Great Pulteney Street and at the entrance to Sydney Garden. The more and better Sydney Gardens itself works, the better it will be for the Holborn Museum. And I'm very pleased to say, he says, with some trepidation, uh, that the council are putting in a bid for the HLF um, this summer uh, for the restoration of uh, the park. I say with some trepidation because this was first suggested, I think, in 1992, so that's only... (coughs) 16 years ago. Um, so, but anyway, uh, I, I mean, it is vitally important for the success of uh, the museum, the project, and for you know, what we hope to achieve within that site, that the park is part of the story as well. Um, when I arrived at the museum, and it's, not, I've, it's uh, not only when I arrived, it's something I'm told over and over again, is that, uh, yes, the Holborn it's marvellous. It's just a shame it's so far away. You know, it's down Great Pulteney Street. You know, you'll never get anyone to go down Great Pulteney Street. Um, and I think, I mean, it's easy to say, oh, yes, that is what's wrong. You know, that's why, that's why people haven't come to the Holborn Museum. It's because of Great Pulteney Street. Um, I'm sure the opposite is true, that its site is actually what's one of the things that is most... Uh, sellable, for want of a better word about it. It is in, you know, it's at the end of one of the great streets uh, uh, in the city, if not in Europe. Um, And it's a question of us persuading people down the street. Uh, But I think we need to make 
as much, if you like, almost of Great Pulteney Street as we do of Sydney Gardens. It's an asset rather than something we should worry about. Having said that, the Warminster Road is far from it, or whatever it is at that point. Um, we could do with sorting out the crossing. Um, anyway, that is, I think, enough from me for now. I'd be uh, very happy to take questions uh, if you have any. <laughs>